Part Three, Sketches. Inspiring. A number of the qualities that came to define Luang Po in the eyes of his disciples were virtues held in universal regard. Perhaps the most prominent of these was that of patience. Although some accomplishments are necessarily private, the extent of a forest monk's capacity to endure through physical discomfort and the rigors of monastic life can never be so. As the leader of a monastic community, Luang Po's patience was visible to all. He earned the particular devotion of the monks of Wat Pa Pong by leading them from the front and by never asking them to do anything that he would not do himself. He also became renowned for his forbearance when dealing with the problems attendant on running a large monastery, listening to and advising on the difficulties and doubts of the monks and novices and mere chiefs and lay supporters. When Luang Po spoke about patience, and he spoke about it often. His words carried great weight. Luang Po was also seen as a role model for the appropriate expression of gratitude, perhaps the virtue most central to Thai culture. In Thailand, a sense of gratitude is taken to be a key distinguishing mark of goodness. Accusations of ingratitude are experienced as serious and hurtful, even devastating. In fact, gratitude. Is a somewhat imprecise translation of the Thai "gatanyu gatoweti," a term taken straight from the Pali, as the latter consists of two related virtues. "Gatanyu" is the recognition of kindnesses received, and "gatoweti" the determination to appropriately express that recognition. Efforts to repay the debt of gratitude are given particular emphasis in Thailand. Especially in the case of key benefactors such as parents and teachers, Luang Po honored his parents in a manner fitting to a monastic. As a young monk, he postponed his studies in order to nurse his father on his deathbed. During his traveling years, he regularly visited his mother and gave her Dhamma teachings. When he established Wat Pa Pong. He arranged for her to come and live in the monastery and become a nun under his guidance and protection. Although Luang Po never practiced under the guidance of a teacher for any great length of time, the sense of gratitude he felt for those who had helped him on the path was tangible. He always spoke with the greatest reverence of Luang Po Man, his spiritual father, meeting whom had been the pivotal experience in his life. He also often spoke with great affection and respect of Luang Pu Thong Rat and Luang Pu Ginnery, the other two monks who had most strongly influenced him. Luang Pu Man passed away in 1949, the year after Luang Po visited him in Nong Pu, while Luang Pu Thong Rat died shortly after Luang Po's return to Ubon in 1956. Luang Po was thus denied the opportunity to express his gratitude to them. But Lungpu Ginnery lived on until 1980, and for many years prior to that, Lungpu sent a regular shift of monks from Wat Pa Pong to act as attendants and nurses, as the old monk refused to have anything at all to do with the medical profession. When Lungpu Ginnery died, Lungpu and his disciples organized the funeral and conducted all of the funeral rites. Luang Po endeared himself to the lay supporters of Wat Pa Pong 
by showing an unwavering appreciation for their support, never taking it for granted. On important occasions in the lives of his longtime supporters, Lung Po would accept invitations to receive alms in their houses. When they were ill, he would visit them and give them encouragement, and at the end of their lives, he would lead the Sangha in performing the funeral rites. He once said to the Sangha, When I knew a certain amount about myself, I thought about the lay people. I saw the debt I owed to them everywhere, even people who'd only put one ladle of rice in my bowl. I wasn't heedless. I didn't forget. I thought of the kindness of every single person. He constantly reminded his disciples to recall how their life depended on the generosity of lay supporters. Giving food, lodging and medicine in times of sickness, these aren't small matters. They're supporting our journey to Nibbana. If we had no food, we wouldn't be able to make it, we wouldn't be able to meditate. Passion The Buddha distinguished two kinds of desire. That which is rooted in ignorance of the way things are, dunha or craving and that which is rooted in an understanding of the way things are. The first is to be abandoned, the second is to be cultivated. This second desirable kind of desire is explained as the will towards goodness, kusala chanda, or the will towards truth, dhamma chanda. It manifests as a passion for dhamma practice. Lumpur was never short of passion, he once revealed that of the problems that he experienced in his monastic life, the only one that had caused him serious difficulty was the sexual desire that bedeviled him throughout his twenties. Fortunately, his passion was never directed solely towards the world of the senses. The same energy propelled him into the monastery at a young age and manifested itself in his devotion to the Dhamma and Vinaya. As worldly lusts abated, this wholesome passion blossomed. The strength of his commitment to the Vinaya was expressed well in his avowal to his disciples that, I'd rather die than transgress the Vinaya. I'd regret losing my life less than losing my virtue. And his enthusiasm for the Dhamma shone through when he compared the joy of facing up to the defilements as like the pleasure of eating extremely spicy food. His practice was characterized by daring and boldness. The passion for truth gave him what in other ways of life would have been called an excellent work ethic. He remained undaunted in the face of obstacles and declared that Nibbana lies on the shores of death. His zest for practice was such that his disciples, struggling to keep up, said that for him it was as if there was no day or night. He once told a newly ordained Ajahn Chon that if you really knew how to bow to the Buddha, you would have tears in your eyes. But the passion that came to the fore in the prime of his life was for communicating his understanding of Dhamma to others. Training monastics was his first priority. They were the ones who were making the most sacrifices for the Dhamma, the ones who were giving their whole lives to the teachings. In one of the Buddhist similes, they were compared to the farmer's most fertile, well-drained soil. He gave everything to this task, creating a system that was not overly reliant on him 
and which could survive his eventual death. The success of his efforts may be estimated by the steady growth of branch monasteries. When he stopped teaching, there were about 60, and 30 years later, there were over 300. Longpo's passion for the Dhamma became clearly apparent whenever he began to teach. Even at times of serious illness, teaching the Dhamma would bring him alive. As he spoke, he would become more animated, his voice stronger, his presence more commanding. It seemed that by giving voice to the Dhamma, he tapped into a deep source of energy. Between these bursts of vitality, it was as if he shrank back into the shell of his ailing body. It was clear that to Lung Po, Dhamma was indeed his life. Contentment One of the cardinal monastic virtues praised by the Buddha is the cultivation of contentment with regard to whatever robes, food, lodging and medicines are offered to them with faith. Monastics are to be as light a burden as possible on lay supporters, and they should model a life which proves that happiness does not have to depend on the enjoyment of sense pleasures. It was a virtue much emphasized at Wat Bapong, and Luang Po led the way in the practice of it. He was admired for his frugality and the care with which he treated the offerings made to him. He received whatever robes were sewn for him without comment. He was never known to express desires for any particular kind of food. He showed no interest in beautiful things. As his reputation grew, wealthy lay supporters competed to offer him fine requisites, but he did not change. On one occasion, a group of monks following the lead of some other well-known monasteries put forward the idea of registering Wat Bapong as a charitable foundation. Luang Po was getting old, and charitable status would guarantee the financial stability of the Wat after his death. Luang Po gave them his opinion. It's a good idea, but I don't think it's a correct one. With a charitable foundation, you would no longer be depending on your own pure practice. If you all practice well and correctly, you won't go without. The Buddha never set up a charity, he just shaved his head and lived as we do, and he did well enough. He laid out the path, and all we have to do is walk along it. That will, without doubt, be enough to keep you going. The bowl and robe, they are the charitable foundation that the Buddha established for us. With them, you will always receive more than you need. Luang Po asserted that maintaining a standard of simplicity and cleanliness in the material world led to a clean and uncluttered mind. If you've got little, use little. If you've got a lot, use little. As the number of visitors to the monastery increased, so did the amount of the donations. Nobody would have given a second thought if Luang Po had taken advantage of this increase in funds to permit an upgrade to the comfort of his dwelling place. But he maintained the same frugal lifestyle as when he first established the monastery. It's true that the kuti built for him in the late 1960s was bigger than those of the other monks. 
but the increased size was simply a means to provide a large enough covered area below it where he could receive guests. The size of the room upstairs in which he slept was less than three meters by three. Almost completely bare, it contained a low wooden bed with an inch-thin mattress and just the most necessary items of daily use, such as a water jug and spittoon. The toilet was in a small outhouse at the edge of the forest. Luang Po distributed any gifts offered to him personally to his disciples, or else sent them off to poor branch monasteries. All money and requisites offered to him went straight into a central Sangha fund. He had no personal funds or private bank account. He said, We've got enough to eat and a place to live. What's the point of accumulating things? We only eat once a day. On many occasions, lay people would complain to Luang Po that after they had made an invitation, a Bawarana, to him for anything personal that he needed, he had never made any use of the funds. He said to the monks, The more invitations lay people make, the more wary I am. Ajahn Anik spoke for many of the monks when he expressed the feelings that arose when he observed Luang Po's lack of greed. The thing which made me feel most proud and satisfied to be Luang Po's disciple, and the thing that inspired me the most, was his own practice. He was never one to accumulate offerings, no matter what their value. He once said that as monks, the moment that we start accumulating things, then it's the beginning of the end. One year, to make merit on her birthday, Kun Ying Tun offered Luang Po 90,000 baht. She insisted that the money should be used for his own personal needs. It was not to be used for the monastery. After she'd gone, Luang Po said that if there was any expense that involved him personally, we should use this money and not leave any over. So we used it to print a beautiful hardback edition of his teachings for free distribution. There has always been a certain amount of tension between the Isan forest monks and the titled administrator monks in the towns and cities. Whereas the forest monks have been critical of the perceived worldliness of the city monks, the city monks, for their part, have been dismissive of what they see as the forest monks' rigid attachment to outdated forms, including the ascetic practice of eating out of the alms bowl rather than from plates on a table. On one occasion, Luang Po was included in a group of monks invited to an offering of arms in the royal palace in Bangkok. He arrived at the same time as a certain senior monk, who looked scornfully at Luang Po's arms bowl. Cha, don't you feel embarrassed about eating out of your bowl in front of the king? To which Luang Po replied, Don't you feel embarrassed about not eating out of your bowl in front of the Buddha? Equanimity For many years, Luang Po was the subject of criticism and slander from a small number of jealous monks in Ubon. At the height of the Vietnam War, he was denounced as a communist. One year, it was even whispered about that a senior monk had gone so far as to hire a hitman. In the Thailand of the time, not such an outlandish assertion. Although Luang Po did not die, the monks supposedly behind the plot did, from rabies. Time passed, 
and Luang Por's resolute refusal to add fuel to the flames of conflict allowed the situation to cool. Luang Por, having handled unjustified abuse with equanimity, now faced a new challenge, fame and popularity. The Buddha was blunt on the dangers likely to beset a monk who becomes famous. A fatal thing gains favour and fame, a bitter, harsh impediment to the attainment of the unsurpassed freedom from bondage. Sangyutta Nikaya, Chapter 17, Sutta 1 And in one of his most vivid and memorable similes, the Buddha showed how the temptation that worldly dhammas provide to pride and arrogance is strong. It is just like a beetle, feeding on dung, gorged with dung, standing before a great dunghill, who might despise other beetles, saying, I am a dung-eater, full of dung, gorged with dung, and before me is this great dunghill. Sangyutta Nikaya, Chapter 17, Sutta 5 In the mobile, connected world of today, it is inevitable that an accomplished monk, resident in a monastery for any length of time, will, sooner or later, attract the attention of the laity. This was already true in the 1970s. During the Vietnam War, an ambitious program of road-building was undertaken in Isan, primarily for military and national security reasons. One result was that it became much easier to visit forest monasteries. At a time of growing secularization and a widespread sense that the standard of the monastic order had never been so low, people started to look further afield for monks who were truly worthy of their respect. Luang Por's name began to be included on the list of inspiring monks worth visiting. A short biography of Luang Por written in 1968 by his disciple Ajahn Mahamon was another milestone. Local businessmen in the city, civil servants, and army and air force officers posted in Ubon started to arrive in greater numbers. Soon, Luang Po was known to the lay Buddhists of Bangkok. Coachloads of merit-makers started to arrive. This new state of affairs was impressed upon the monastery when two members of the king's privy council visited to ask questions on Dhamma practice. Sometime later, Luang Po was invited to receive alms in the royal palace. The publication of books of Luang Po's transcribed Dhamma talks, both in the Thai originals and in English translations, were initiated by his Western disciples in the late 1970s. Following Luang Po's admonition that the Dhamma should never be bought and sold, they were made available for free distribution. These books, followed by the first set of audio cassette tapes, spread Luang Por's name throughout Thailand, and the English translations gave him an international audience. Before long, his teachings were being translated into German, French, Spanish, Chinese, and other languages. Luang Por seemed as unmoved by this newfound fame and status as he had been by abuse and slander. On the 5th of November 1973, he received from King Pumipornadunyadet the monastic honour of Jaukun with the title Pra Bodhinyana Thera. On his return from Bangkok, 
a large crowd was waiting to greet him at Ubon railway station. A long procession of cars and trucks escorted him back to the monastery, where many hundreds more people were waiting. Once there, a grand merit-making ceremony took place to celebrate the honour conferred by the king on their teacher. Throughout it all, Lung Po remained a cool, still centre at the heart of the excitement and joy. When the lay people formally invited him to give a Dhamma talk, he spoke of his feelings at receiving the title. He said that the title of Jiao Kun was a worldly convention. He was the same Lung Po that he had been a few days before. Worldly Dhammas of gain and loss, fame and obscurity, pleasure and pain, praise and blame are all fickle and changing. Knowing the nature of worldly Dhammas, the mind is not moved by them. The bridge over the river moon always remains the same. It doesn't arch up if the waters rise. It doesn't sag if the waters fall. Personality It would seem obvious that any detailed discussion of a person's life must, sooner or later, focus on his or her personality. It tends to be assumed that it is in the personality that the essence of a person is to be found. But this apparent truism requires certain qualifications in the case of liberated beings or those practicing for liberation. In such cases, the personality is fluid. Personality traits based on defilements, such as greed and anger, shrink and disappear. Those traits free of defilement, like kindness and compassion, grow and mature. In the case of liberated beings, those character traits, eccentricities and elements of personality that are not sustained by defilement survive their enlightenment. Inarticulate aspirants become inarticulate arahants. Stern aspirants become stern arahants. Charismatic aspirants become charismatic arahants. There is no fixed mould, and just as bright and radiant people may occasionally prove to be deluded or mentally unbalanced, so too the most unprepossessing figures may in fact be fully liberated. Lung Po once compared enlightened beings to birds of different species, differing in size, wingspan, colouring, sound and so on, but all recognisably members of the bird family. The second qualification that must be made in speaking of the personality of enlightened beings is that they do not have the same relationship to their personality as a normal person. Liberation in the Buddhist sense means freedom from all identification with personality and personal history. Be that as it may, unenlightened beings identifying with their own body and mind cannot help but perceive an enlightened person in the same way that they perceive themselves as embodied agents. And it is because that is so that the personality of great beings is significant. For many students, it may be a response to the teacher's personality rather than an intellectual assent to the teachings that proves the deciding factor as to whether or not they take up the Buddhist training seriously or, having taken it up, bear with it.
Longpaw was one of the more charismatic kinds of bird. One of his brothers said of him, I wouldn't exactly say he was a handsome man, but when you were in his presence, you couldn't take your eyes off him. Other members of his family had this same magnetism, albeit to a lesser extent. For many years, one of the regular features of an observance day at Wat Pong would be Lung Po's eldest brother, Po La, sitting in the kitchen surrounded by a small crowd of people, expounding on some subject, recounting an anecdote or telling a story. The style was unmistakable. Western monks would comment on how Lung Po seemed to be so completely who he was. In other words, they could discern no false notes in his manner, no hints of insecurity or conceit. As the centre of attention, he showed as much self-consciousness as a lion on a plain surrounded by safari jeeps. He remained the same whatever the surrounding conditions. One monk said he was like a mountain that was unaffected by the rain, snow or shine that came and went around it. And yet, there was a paradox. Although he impressed those around him as a figure of absolute authenticity, he could, at the same time, slip personas on and off like items of clothing. But the more unpredictable he might be in what he said, or how he expressed himself at any one moment, the more unchanging he seemed. Occasionally, as Ajahn Sumedha would remark, it was as if Lung Po withdrew from his personality altogether. Sometimes I'd look at him, and there'd be just no one there. The look he had of total emptiness was quite moving, because you realised that the personality was just something he used as a compassionate tool. Sitting under his guti receiving guests, Lung Po would flow between quite different modes as the situation required. On any given day, he might have just finished comforting a bereaved father in homely Lao, then switch to central Thai to explain some point of doctrine with Bangkok academics, and then go on to admonish a monk for a sloppy job of repair work on one of the kutis. This would go on throughout the day. It was not the multitasking familiar to business executives. He was fully present in every moment, giving no sign of mental stress in moving from one mode to another and no emotional runover. When telling a favourite story, he would chuckle as he got to the funny part, as if it were the first time he had told it. At such times, there was no trace of the vanity and bombast of the great man with the captive audience, nor the slightest acknowledgement that many of his audience knew the story well. It was a stronger teaching about being in the moment than any amount of theoretical instruction could impart. Ajahn Chon was one of the monks who marvelled at such sessions. One evening, Lung Po was sitting on the wicker seat underneath his kuti talking to a small group of monks about the old days, and I was in my favourite position massaging his feet. His manner was so warm and inspiring that I felt utterly content. I could have sat there the whole night without complaint. Then a torch beam moved through the forest towards us. It was Venerable Do. He was quite a senior monk who had transgressed a serious Vinaya training rule, a Sangadi Sesa, and was undergoing a manata, 
the prescribed purificatory practices. Venerable Do had brought some of Lung Po's freshly washed robes to put away upstairs. Without any stiffening in his body, Lung Po suddenly barked at him in the harshest possible way. The contrast with the atmosphere in our small group made the hair on my back stand on end. At that moment, Lung Po was utterly ferocious. Venerable Do quickly did what he had to do, bowed and left. Then Lung Po continued our conversation as if nothing had happened. He made no comment about Venerable Do and didn't refer to what had just happened at all. It was as if it had never happened. I suddenly felt very heedless. The intimacy I'd felt holding his foot in my hand and the enjoyment of the conversation had made me forget that here was someone who dwelt somewhere far beyond my scope and comprehension. I felt a strong compulsion to be mindful and alert. I realized that I could take nothing for granted. Another monk spoke of Lung Po being a mirror in which you always saw yourself. His ability to reflect people's attention back on their own defilements was not due to him adopting an even emotional tone. Rather, it was the consistent lack of self in whatever mode he was expressing. And so, his disciples loved him and feared him in an inexplicable, visceral way. Sense of Humor One of the personality traits that marked Lung Po as a boy and endured throughout his life was his sense of humor. It was a quality that always drew people to him and made them enjoy his company. As a teenage novice, Luang Por was notorious amongst his friends for how much he found funny and how easily he could burst into laughter. As he got older, Luang Por curbed his tendency to lose his composure at the sight of the incongruous, the ridiculous and the self-important, but his enjoyment of them never seemed to fade. He became adept at allowing his sense of humor to shape teachings that, delivered more sternly, might have been less easily received. He pointed to people's arrogance and superstitions and foolishness in ways that bypassed their habitual defenses, leaving them disarmed and wiser. As a teacher, he would have agreed with the saying that comedy is a humorous way of saying serious things. Lung Po's rich sense of humor did not mean that he told jokes. To do so would have been considered inappropriate for a summoner. He did not set himself up as an entertainer, nor did he try to make people laugh for the sake of it. He never spoke in ways that made fun of others' ethnicity, religion or sexuality, or that tapped into people's prejudices in any way. He allowed his sense of humor to reveal itself only within the limits provided by the Vinaya. These limits are stringent. It is forbidden, for example, to speak in jest about the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. The logic behind this is that by not trivializing the refuges, the uplifting emotions meant to be inspired by them remain uncompromised. Lying in jest is included in the precepts governing unskillful speech and so precludes most kinds of playfulness and the prohibition against inciting anxiety prevents practical jokes. There is a long list of conversational topics which monks are to avoid altogether unless to illustrate a point of Dhamma. 
kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars, food, drink, clothes, beds, garlands, perfumes, relatives, carriages, villages, towns and cities, countries, women, heroes, street and well gossip, talk of the departed, desultory chat, speculations about land and sea, talk about being and non-being. This list is found in several places, for example the Anguttara Nikaya 10s, Sutta 69. From such injunctions, there would seem to be little left for monks to talk about at all, much less to speak about amusingly. This is far from the case. When Lung Po was in the mood, his exuberance was infectious. When telling an anecdote, expanding upon the absurd and incongruous forms in which defilement could manifest, or mimicking someone under the sway of greed or anger, he could provoke a genuine sense of delight in his audience. Lung Po's gift for physical comedy provoked wide grins and even giggles. One of his favourite stories concerned a mangy dog, who blamed his suffering on the places he found himself in rather than the mange he carried with him. Lung Po liked to accompany this story with bewildered scratchings at his body and armpit. Even the most composed monks would find themselves chuckling. Although he did not tell jokes as such, Lung Po had the timing of a comedian. He was a gifted raconteur and knew well how to ratchet up the expectation during the course of a teaching story and deflate it expertly with the twist at the end of the tale. Like most intelligent people brought up in a predominantly oral culture, Lung Po took great delight in puns and wordplay. His discourses are sprinkled with them. Examples from his talks might be cited to show his wit, verbal dexterity and ingenuity, but would fail to transmit the essential point of them, the pleasure they provided. It's hard to convey how much people enjoyed it when Lung Po, referring to the corruption of the Tudong tradition caused by monks accepting lifts in cars rather than walking, called it Tolutdong, or in one end of the forest and straight out the other. Some of the most memorable examples of Lung Po's sense of humour occurred through off-the-cuff comments or replies to questions. Often they involved him invoking fresh, unexpected ways of looking at familiar issues, thereby puncturing his audience's attachments. For those of other cultures, and thus with other conventions and beliefs, such humour, especially in translation, tends to fall flat. However, a couple of examples may give something of the flavour of his humorous comments. On one occasion, a young man, newly conscripted into the army, asked Lung Po for a Buddha medallion to wear around his neck as a protection against bullets. He was following in an old tradition. Monks have been known to provide empowered amulets to soldiers for hundreds of years. Lung Po, however, always refused to do so. Before explaining why, he pointed to the life-size brass Buddha statue on the shrine. Take that one if you like. Carry it in front of you and no bullets will get you for sure. As the human body does not vary from one culture to another, 
humor derived from it is more universal. Ajahn Sumedha recalls the time that Lung Po took him to visit some of the great masters of the Lung Bu Man tradition. In Udon province, they paid their respects to one elderly master, believed to be an arahant, who was confined to a wheelchair and rarely spoke. Lung Po had recently been offered a cassette recorder and was using it to record Dhamma teachings. It was placed in front of the venerable old monk, who sat there quietly smiling at them. After a suitable time had elapsed, and it was clear that he was not going to speak, they prepared to bow to him and leave. At that moment, the great master farted. Back in the car, Lung Po replayed the tape. The sound of the fart was clearly audible. Lung Po looked at Ajahn Sumedho and said, That was a good teaching. Stern and Fierce The warm, radiant, loving-kindness that so many lay Buddhists remarked feeling in Lung Po's presence in his later years was, for most of his teaching career, eclipsed by its companion virtue of compassion. As Lung Po entered middle age, the young monks in their early twenties saw him more and more as a father figure. Generally, their view of him was not so much as a fount of unconditional love, but rather as the wise parent who found the ways in which his sons created suffering for themselves to be unacceptable. Or, to use another analogy, he was seen to be like a doctor with an unwavering determination to help his patients overcome a chronic illness, even if that should entail procedures that the patients might not enjoy or might even resist. And like patients, his disciples submitted because they were confident that the doctor knew what he was talking about. Lung Po's compassion could manifest as fierceness, a trait which he shared with a number of other great teachers in his tradition. In Lung Ta Mahabua's biography of his teacher Lung Bu Man, the great master is presented as a stern figure who was often harsh with his disciples. Lung Ta Mahabua himself, until his death in 2011, the most widely revered of the great master's direct disciples in Thailand, was famed and feared for the same qualities throughout his life. Although many of Lung Bu Man's disciples were known for their gentleness and reserve, and some of them felt there were more of those qualities in Lung Bu Man than was widely acknowledged, the figure of the fierce teacher became something of an icon in the forest tradition. Certainly, Lung Bu Man, the archetypical stern teacher, was astonishingly successful in leading his disciples to stages of liberation, and of his Dhamma heirs, Lung Ta Mahabua was acknowledged for his excellence in this regard. Lung Po's sternness, especially in his middle age, has been referred to in the previous chapter. It was a trait that increased the respect with which the young monks held him. They had grown up in an authoritarian culture, and this kind of sternness and occasional fierce admonishment was something they were familiar with. Too much overt kindness would have endeared Lung Po to his disciples, but at the expense of the intensity of purpose he was trying to instill in them. The policy he adopted towards heedless conduct was one of zero tolerance. Not even the smallest of misendemers were overlooked. 
strong admonishments were dished out from the Dhamma seat almost every night. The results were mixed. The more dedicated the practitioner, the better it worked. Some monks, however, unable to thrive in the high-pressure atmosphere disrobed, and it is possible that a number of them might have survived in the robes if they had lived in a more relaxed environment. Most, however, found the fear they felt for Long Poor empowering. They appreciated how the constant demand to be aware kept their defilements at bay, more than mere encouragement could ever have accomplished. Lung Po was not seen so much as an authority figure scolding them personally as the embodiment of Dhamma Vinaya censuring their defilements. There was always the danger that this enthusiasm for practice would be too dependent on the presence of Luang Po to be a sustainable refuge. But it was often the case that it jump-started a passion for Dhamma that became second nature. As Luang Po aged, the fierce side of his personality receded, and the sternness ceded centre stage to a warmer, more grandfatherly persona. But the sharp, clear-eyed discrimination was never completely submerged. The discourse he delivered to the Sangha in 1980, later translated into English as Toilets on the Path, demonstrates that even at the end of Lung Po's teaching career, he could deliver one of his legendary stinging admonitions. Luang Po missed nothing. One monk referred to sitting in Luang Po's presence and feeling as if his teacher was a tiger dwelling within a Cheshire cat. Independent Luang Po treasured his independence. He counseled his disciples to keep a distance from the wealthy and the powerful because association with such people was dangerous to a monk's integrity. It was a standard that he himself upheld throughout his life. Monks can easily find themselves compromising the standards of simplicity and frugality in their monasteries out of consideration for the desire of wealthy donors to make merit. Lung Po never did so. It is surprisingly common for forest monasteries in Thailand to become dominated by a single lay supporter, usually a woman. These women, often believed to have some ancient kummic connection to the abbot, are ceded power and influence in the running of the monastery. If they have donated the land on which the monastery was built, or have contributed substantially to its construction, their position tends to be especially strong. These women are usually of middle age, most often married, and their relationship to the abbot is almost always free from any suggestion of impropriety. They are jokingly referred to throughout the Buddhist community as godmothers. While such persons may relieve the abbot of tiresome administrative duties, they can seriously skew his relationship with the monastery's lay community, and even members of the Sangha may become jealous of their influence. Wat Bapong never had a godmother. Lung Po showed great skill and diplomacy in preventing any lay Buddhist, male or female, from establishing a special, favoured position in the Wat. His independence and refusal to have favourites or an inner circle enhanced the trust in which he was held and the harmony and loyalty of his disciples. An example of Lung Po's determination to do things as he saw fit 
irrespective of the wishes of his lay supporters, may be seen from an account given by Da Sui, who had led a rather colourful life as a layman until Lung Po took him under his wing. On a number of occasions, Lung Po took Da Sui as his attendant on walking expeditions. During a trip to central Thailand, he accepted the invitation of a devoted couple to rest up at their house situated on the coast outside Bangkok. It was a lovely place. I could have stayed there for ages. But after three nights, Lung Po tells me to pack his things and arrange some transport. It's time to leave. I'm a bit disgruntled. I say, wouldn't it be better to tell the owner of the house first? He said, no, if we do that, they won't let us leave. We didn't make any promises about how long we were going to stay. We can't let them tie us up in obligations. Well, anyway, the caretaker must see something's up and phones his boss in Bangkok. Lung Po tells the taxi driver to take us to Aranya Prathet out on the Cambodian border. We're only about 10 kilometers down the road, though, when the lady of the house comes racing up behind us in her car, overtakes us and blocks off the road ahead. She jumps down out of the vehicle, rushes over and bows to him right there in the middle of the road, sobbing and crying, Oh, Lung Po, you can't leave yet. You've only just arrived. I've hardly had any time to speak with you and you're going to abandon us already. Within moments, her husband arrives in his car and so there's a second vehicle blocking the road. But they can beg and plead all day and all night. Lung Po's not going to change his mind. All he'll say is wait till the next time. Then the man starts to cry as well. The woman asks the taxi driver how much he's charging and he says 400 baht. She pulls the money out of her handbag and puts it on the dashboard. Lung Po just sits there impassive. He tells the driver to start the engine and so, the last we see of the two of them, they're squatting down by the side of the road their hands in Anjali, looking totally dejected. Much later, paying respects to Lung Po in Bangkok, the couple could laugh at the whole affair. <laughs>